0: Has there always been homelessness in America? It's something we don't want to look at. We'd like to keep it invisible. But homelessness, how big of a problem really is it? And how, how solvable can it be that we're not doing? Bert Cohen here. With your help, we are keeping democracy alive.
1: He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely.
0: If you're listening to this now, it's highly unlikely you would be considered homeless. Whether we're conscious of it or not, many of us have a gut reaction to people we perceive as the other, not fitting in. Something vaguely threatening to our sense of stability and safety, predictability, normalcy. When you see a person who appears to be living on the streets, what's your reaction? Luckily, you don't have to say. This is radio, after all. But let's face it, we'd rather not see such people in our otherwise comfortable paths. But since they are there, we can file the picture away in a box. Dehumanize them so we can ignore them. Just look away. They're not us, but what does that get us? Like it or not, homelessness is a national crisis, and it continues to increase. And that, that's a curious phenomenon. And as history shows, in order for us to make any sort of progress, it's imperative that we see what we'd rather not see. Well, our guest today did just that. A lot of that, actually. Dr. Robert Oaken spent two years on the streets, yes, two years, talking to and photographing homeless, mentally ill people. In his new book, Silent Voices, People with mental disorders on the street, second edition, Robert Oaken, MD, focuses on recognizing our common humanity with the homeless as the crucial first step in solving the problem of homelessness. Behind the rags, the shopping carts, the cups, and strange behavior, Dr. Oaken dares to go beyond the off putting, concerning surface for a needed step in bolstering econo- America's economic mental health and national stability. What factors or choices had brought these people there? How do they cope with such unbearably grim circumstances? Perhaps most unexpectedly, again and again, our guest, Dr. Oken, was struck by their, quote, bravery and tenacity of individuals who wind up homeless. Dr. Oaken, Bob Oken, thanks so much for being with us today on keeping democracy alive. There's a lot to talk about.
2: Thanks so much. And that was a great introduction.
0: Yeah, no, I tried. <laughs> uh, Dr. Oken is a leading psychiatrist and world recognized expert on human rights for the mentally disabled. He began his career at the National Institute of Mental Health, followed by 10 years as Commissioner of Mental Health for the states of Vermont and Massachusetts, and he wanted to serve as a Chief of Psychiatry at San Francisco General Hospital and Professor of Clinical Psychiatry at University of California, also San Francisco, for 17 years. As a founding member of the Board of Advisors of Mental Disability Rights International. Imagine that, rights. Mm, not privileges, rights. He led psychiatric projects in Investigative missions in Armenia, Azerbaijan, Hungary, Peru, Romania... Romania, I should say, Turkey, Paraguay, and Ukraine, as well as Mexico, where he helped to close the notoriously abusive Ocaranza psychiatric facility in Hidalgo, replacing it with more home-like settings and community-based services. And he's often been quoted in the New York Times and other places. While two years on the streets, not a lot of people choose to take up that challenge... Uh, how did that come about?
2: Well, when I was uh, in the hospital as chief, I realized that I really didn't know these people in a deep, personal kind of way. I was doing the best I could, but it was in a clinical context. You know, I had the authority of the quote a doctor unquote uh, with my white coat and it was it was not a mm. not a situation that really encouraged people to be open about the most personal aspects of their lives
1: mm.
2: so when I when I left the hospital, uh, I guess the inciting event was this I was hurrying to my car when really cold and rainy night and I saw this little woman in rags huddled up on the sidewalk trying to keep the rain off of her I got into my car but afterwards I kind of felt like I deserted her I know it doesn't Mm. make any sense but that's how I felt and I couldn't I couldn't get her out of my mind. I kept wondering how in the world she endured day after day and night after night. And I decided I was going to go onto the street and talk to people who were homeless and probably mentally ill. Uh, and I, I, just developed so much admiration for these people and you know I was so struck by how hard it was to live on the streets I mean one can kind of imagine but until you actually see it Mm -hmm. and feel it and experience it with them it's hard to get it You start to get that knowledge in your gut so I began talking to them and I decided that I wanted to share what I learned with a wider audience. And by giving them a voice in the public domain, I hope that could convey, I guess, their essential humanity, as as you said, as a counterweight to the fear, hostility, Mm -hmm. blame, and indifference with which they're generally seen and treated. And again, as you said, but it really bears repeating, as long as we don't see them as people as long as we don't recognize what we have in common mm. not just the differences we'll never be able to identify with them and we'll continue to dehumanize them i know it may sound strange to say you know that we have a lot in common with them but you know scratch the surface and we all get cold when the temperature drops. We all get wet and uncomfortable when it rains on us. We all get exhausted when we have no place to sleep. and and we you know we're searching for something, uh, whether it be food or comfort or something, to shore up our mm-hmm. uh, view of ourselves. And if we carry a dehumanized view into the political arena, we'll continue to convey to our political leaders that we don't really care about these people. And so we won't hold them accountable for abandoning them. And the problem will never be solved. Mm. Humanizing them, as you said, is the foundation for political action. And only this will let our political leaders know that we insist that they stop nibbling around the edges of this problem and actually take action to solve it.
0: Yeah, boy, wouldn't that be nice? And and to just shunt it away and not not want to look at it. I mean, we all know, uh, you know, people who, if you walk in on the street and you see somebody who's, you know, appearing to be homeless... One gets a little bit uncomfortable, but the idea of feeling a commonality with them. And I think that's, you know, one of the, personally, I think it's one of the big problems in the United States these days is the isolation that people feel and lack of connectedness and commonality. And that's one of the things that the, uh, frankly, I think evil Trump people uh, play on is a sense of disconnectedness and that, you know, he can pretend, and it's a it's a pretend, to be one of them, one of you, he speaks for you, you know, the the forgotten people, stuff like that. But we have to connect with that. And the sense of community, that's, that, that's so important. And, you know, it, so long in American history, in the last couple hundred years, we've had this myth of rugged individualism. It was never real, but it's a remarkably persistent and tenacious myth. You know, if someone sometime in his or her life, maybe down on his or her luck, the tendency is to have a gut reaction that, oh, this person has some sort of personal failing. Better stay away from them. And Bible thumpers use a lot of quotes when they're convenient. Mm-hmm. Such as, there but for the grace of God go I. But in practice, well, yeah, you know, Dr. Oken, Causes of chronic homelessness, let's face it, they go beyond individuals control including lack of social and healthcare support for the mentally ill the side effects of psychiatric medication and the drug epidemic and the closely related criminalization of the mentally ill and the background that people that the that a lot of people have had i, I, I wonder there's there's a lot in that question i know you know and i just uh, abuse how my, what percentage of people out on the streets have had, like, awful, awful childhoods. And, you know, they, they, they just have to, they feel like they have to keep it inside. I've talked enough. Your turn.
2: Yeah, well, your your question is a big one, and it's multifaceted, but... Go ahead. Uh, as children, virtually every single person I met as a child suffered some serious abuse neglect. In fact, 40% of the women that I met were willing to acknowledge that they had been sexually abused. Mm. And I think it's hard for people who have had a decent childhood with caring parents, um, I think it's hard for them to imagine what it's like when they get the reverse and the school systems and the social service agencies, they, they just turn a blind eye to the problem. And so these kids, by and large, never get identified except when they get into trouble. And then they're given a kind of Band-Aid and sent out again. Uh, but nothing, nothing really useful is being done for them. So when, when they get a little older, uh, maybe 10, 11, 12, and certainly into their adolescence, many of them turn to drugs to try to assuage the pain of their early childhoods. And the result of that is that they fall further and further behind in school. And if they had ever thought that they might amount to something, they quickly are disabused of that notion uh, as a result of the fact that they fall further and further behind. And it's not just the medications, not just the drugs that, that, that caused them to fall behind. It's that their whole character is uh, deeply affected by their uh, early upbringing, including their executive functioning so they, mm. they, when they're in high school, you know they just can't make it by and large, and they enter adulthood with almost no employable skills. And if they manage somehow to eke out a, a, a low-income job, uh, they're psychologically, emotionally, cognitively, just one step away from the street. and all it takes Is you know as I show in my in the stories that they told me, you know all it takes is one little verse, and they're homeless.
0: Yes, one little thing, and uh, I just I just can't imagine. And and obviously in schools that's that's how they get noticed, and. Uh, tell us about the, the title of your book, Silent Voices. Tell us about that, please. Silent Voices is sort of a contradiction in terms.
2: Yeah, I guess I hit upon that because I was so struck by the fact that they're crying out for help in their own ways, but not, not in a manner that, we can seem to hear them. And so that that accounts for that contradiction.
1: Uh,
0: and, you know, I, I don't know what percentage of the American economy right now, uh, you know, there, there are people homeless, and I, 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 I guess it's it's gotten uh, worse. And I wonder about, you know, we had the Great Depression in the 1930s, and People, it wasn't uncommon. People have a, an impression today that you know people out in the streets selling apples. That the rest of the population cared. That we could identify with them. What What do we know about that? I wonder if the average American had more empathy back then, which led to you know more political action, creating of jobs, and you know having a, a sense of community. What, what's your sense of that, Dr. Ogan?
2: Well, I'm I'm not an expert on that sure. period, but my my gut sense from my own parents was that people identified with each other because they were going through the same experience of the depression. Right. They felt the hopelessness and the demoralization and so on, and so it was much easier to identify with the hobo which was the right. homeless population at that time. And uh, the hobo was a different, was kind of a different kind of uh, person than those that we see on the street today. But th- the fact that he had experienced the same thing as the rest of the population made it possible for them to identify with them mm. uh, today it's much harder for various reasons. For one thing, as you were starting, I thought, to edge into in some of your comments, you know, we have developed a society that treasures and idealizes independence and Mm -hmm. productivity and self-reliance. And some of that I came I think came from the whole immigration experience Hmm. of who came to this country where they they had to rely on themselves because if they didn't you know they just weren't going to make it and that that was true both of people who came to the east coast uh, but it also was true and i think became even more idealized when people began to travel west because then they really they really had to rely on their own wits take the law into their own hands.
1: Mm. Uh,
2: so th- that intensified this idealization of independence. And, if, you know, those are great values if you can live up to them. Yeah. But if you can't, then you are disparaged in the most hateful kind of way and blamed. blamed. Uh Yeah. As though, you know, as though their experience as a child was similar to yours. You know, one of the things that surprised me when I uh, began talking to people on the street was that I, I expected that they'd blow me off and refuse to talk to me.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I found the opposite. They seemed genuinely pleased that I was interested in their lives. And most of these people had been neglected as children and continued to feel invisible as Mm. people on the street, which we, of course, feed into by just always looking the other way and averting our eyes. But seeing that I was very interested in them really seemed to mean a lot to them. And they were willing to talk to me. They were willing to let me uh, record them. And most surprisingly, they let me photograph them. And the reason that I wanted to photograph them was that there was something that words couldn't really tell about their suffering. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And it was so clear to me how, how the pain of their lives was etched into their faces. And I thought, even if the words didn't get to the reader, God, these photographs just had to. I didn't stage the photographs. You know, I didn't say, you know, stand over here, look that way while I take. I I photographed them as they talked to me, uh, which was at first kind of awkward. Mm. Uh, you know, I had this big camera that was between me and them. Mm-hmm. But you know, after a while, both of us just forgot it, and I was clicking away. But I was mostly interested in their in their stories. Mm. I also expected to find people with tough outer shells who were gonna be very difficult to connect with. And instead I found people who were exquisitely sensitive and very willing to talk to me with surprising candor and intensity about very personal and intimate and often shameful issues in their lives. I would say the majority of people that I spoke to, most had tears in their eyes during much of the interviews. And I just have to say parenthetically that it was hard not to be touched by their by their feelings. You know, I would go home at night with a lump in my throat off and wondering how was I going to get out on the street the next day because some of it was just so sad you, you you couldn't you couldn't fail to be moved by their stories. Mm. And also, I expected them to blame their homelessness on society when, in fact, they tended to blame themselves Ooh. wrongly, in my opinion. But you know, one guy said to me,, uh, You know, if you're born with a big nose, well, that's just that's just the way you were born. But if you don't have any teeth, which is kind of the most obvious stigmata of homelessness, you know, then it shows everybody that you're nothing but a screw up. And that man said, I never smile because if I smile everyone will see I have no teeth and they will conclude that I'm a total screw up. And it gets more, it, 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 it's deeper than that. I I asked him, well, do you have any romantic relationships? And he said, I can't. He said, I long for one,
1: mm-hmm.
2: but I could never take the risk of getting involved because as soon as a woman kissed me, she would disgusted by my gums.
0: Oh, gosh! Wow, what what an incredible learning experience for you, and hopefully for everybody that uh, that sees this book, *Silent Voices*. And we're speaking with its author on keeping democracy alive. Its author is uh, Dr. Robert Oken. *Silent Voices*: People with mental disorders. Uh, on the street. And, you know, I know from unemployed people, Let's you know, let's face it, in America, people blame themselves. And, you know, turn the, the anger and the frustration and the pain inward, even if it's not appropriate. And, and you're reminding me about the teeth. Many years ago, I was in the New Hampshire State Senate, and there was an issue of uh, the state funding uh, dental care for kids. And there were some in the state Senate, Republicans, who uh, felt like, oh, this is, oh, you know, come on. You know, we're going to do everything. Uh, it's extremely important. And a lot of people, we don't think about that. Those of us with decent teeth, we don't think about that. They're, as we say in New England, wicked expensive to, to, to see a dentist, you know. But, uh, yeah, to have that is something like you can't, you can't miss it. And it's just like this is who I am. How incredibly painful. And you that, that's one phrase that, that that struck me in preparing for this, that, that you were struck by the bravery and tenacity of these individuals who wind up homeless. I mean, people don't intend to be homeless. It's not their you know, intention to do that. They'd love to have uh, better cared-for teeth. what What did you learn about their ability to, to cope and survive that actually surprised you?
2: Yeah, well... You know, that that woman that I first saw on the street was emblematic of their, you know, the tenacity of people like her. And it was tenacity in the face of so much opposition to the society sharing some of its wealth with them. You know, your comment about uh, the uh, the reluctance of certain legislators to pay for dental care is really just an expression of that fact that, by and large, in this society, we do not want to share with people mm. who need us to share the most, uh, largely because of the issues we were talking about before the. You know, the values of the society. And one of the things that's really intensified homelessness in this country is the growing disparity in wealth between the rich and the poor. And, you know, although we kind of tend to see that as just part of the natural order of things, there's nothing natural about it. Those people you know, are able to amass that much wealth and pass it on to their descendants because of our taxation policies. And uh, if we had more progressive taxation, we would be able to share some of this wealth that's now in the hands of the top 1% to 10% of the population. We would be able to share it. And it always amazes me how, by and large, the electorate feels everybody should be able to keep what they make, even if they're not even if they're even out of right. an existence as well. But the values of the society just make it very difficult for people to believe that society has an obligation mm. and government has an obligation to help people at the bottom because The shadow side of having this small group of enormously wealthy people is the bottom and the very bottom are the homeless. They are the most fragile. They are the most poor. And we do not want to take money away from the very wealthy because maybe we'll be wealthy like that someday. Yeah, right. Uh, (laughs) Uh, and and share it with them. And I have to say that you know when people pass homeless, mentally ill people on the street, all they see is their carts and their tin cups and their strange behaviors. They don't see how they got that way, and they certainly don't yeah. see they they certainly don't see that at a systemic level, Governments at all levels created or permitted the development of so many poor people on the street in the first place. They first dumped 600,000 mentally ill people on the street with no services, no housing, no support at all. But where did they expect they were going to go? Oh, no. and, seven, and 70 years after this, governments have still failed to create the kind of mental health and substance abuse services that help these people with serious mental illness and drug disorders. Then, government's legislated tax policies yeah. that contribute to the huge disparities of wealth, as I mentioned. Uh, um,
0: yeah. It's, right? it's, oh my God! Yes, and. You know, one can look back and, and so much of what you said, I, I, I'm, I'm having the uh, pleasure and challenge, quite frankly, of reading a, a lot of uh, John Maynard Keynes right now. And he recognized that, you know, it's not it's not just a natural order of things. Government policies have to be involved in where the money comes from, where it goes. It doesn't happen all by itself. And it absolutely is. You know, part of a government policy, and we pour hundreds, unimaginable, hundreds of billion dollars into so-called national security weapon systems that make some powerful interests quite well to do with probably many homes, rather the antithesis of homelessness, and that, and that government use of tax dollars is very pervasive, and there was the the. The Reagan era, the image of the welfare queen was conjured up. Of course, it was a useful, dishonest myth. And today we still have the concept of the deserving and those not deserving. We have the concept about uh, the nanny state, the dreaded nanny state. It seems to me that it's not, you know, uh, you know oh, it's being nice, it's being uh, generous. It's actually in all of our interest to do something about this. Yeah. Respond to that, please. You
2: mentioned mentioned Reagan, and, you know, I know he's become a kind of icon in this society. God knows why. But, you know, uh, he, I think the evidence shows that he was a major villain in this piece. He wasn't content as governor to have botched up deinstitutionalization in California, but as president he went further and slashed the federal support for low-income housing and popularized this ridiculous economic notion of the trickle-down effect. And aggravating the problem further was the fact that governments at the city and state levels actually created incentives that encouraged real estate moguls to convert low cost housing into condominiums that poor people just couldn't possibly right, afford.
0: Right.
2: In New York, listen, in New York City alone, this led to the loss of 100,000 low income apartments. Can you imagine that? 100,000. We're talking about a few people here and a few people there. We're talking about 100,000 people. Listen, the, the uh, population of San Francisco is about 800,000. So 100,000, I'm just trying to give people an idea yeah, sure. yeah. Of what 100,000 means. That's one eighth the population of San Francisco. So I, I'm talking about New York when I talk about the loss of these 100,000 low-income apartments, but where were the people who had lived in these apartments going to go? And then furthermore, and this relates to the Bay Area, they encouraged big tech companies to land within their borders without adequately taxing them for gobbling up the housing supply so that they could repair some of the damage they were creating. And we now have a large discrepancy between the supply of low-income housing and the number of people who need it. And governments have promulgated land use provisions and have created so much red tape that it's often impossible for housing developers to build new low-income housing. So we have this, you know, almost stable discontinuity between supply and demand. And again, people think that it just happened, you know, that just the economic way that things go. But it is not. It happened because cities encouraged with tax incentives, these big companies to come in, which which is fine. I have no. Right. I have no criticism of that, but they allowed them to come in not only without taxing them to help the population that was displaced, but they actually gave them tax incentives to come in. You know, the situation now has been compared to musical chairs. If there aren't enough chairs, someone will always be standing when the music stops. And that person is usually mentally ill and fragile and totally unable to cope. And I describe all this to challenge the idea that homelessness just happened almost by itself Mm. and is part of the natural order of things. But there's nothing natural about it. It didn't just happen. Governments contributed to creating and now maintaining the problem. And if we fail to hold them responsible, we'll never solve this problem as long as we allow our political leaders to nibble around the edges mm. of the problem rather than really taking action to solve it they'll never do anything effective to help these people listen yeah. we're we're lucky to live in a democracy yes however imperfect it might be oh, yes. and however trump wants to destroy it and Supported by his thirty percent political base, but right now we're lucky to live in a democracy, and we need to use it to force change. And that's might. It might be easy to just blame the government for its failure to do anything, but as I said, the government is us, and when we as citizens put pressure on the government, it will respond. And not until then. And if we fail to pressure the government, we will be living with this problem for the next hundred years, and we will have only ourselves to blame, in my opinion.
0: I I couldn't agree more. We, you know, and one of the things I I think that uh, people need to understand is that, you People now, you know, it's very trendy and popular to believe that all those, you know, ultra, super, hyper rich, you know, they deserve every penny uh, and, you know, trickle down. As Rocky said to Bullwinkle, that trickle never works. It doesn't work. And it's in our interest. The idea of, of a nanny state. Well, these people don't deserve it. Are they deserving? Well, it's, it's, it's in our interest. It's not just out of the goodness of our heart. You know, and, right. and, and and I think that's exceedingly important for people to realize that. I know in our in my neck of the woods we've had something called workforce housing. It ain't perfect, but it's not bad. And this country has ever since Abraham Lincoln been much more aspirational than than real. I mean, democracy. Yeah, we're not fully there, but we have these aspirations, and they're. Very good, very valuable aspirations. And those of us who care about, you know, traditional, what I would call conservative America, really genuinely conservative, you know, we care about reaching for these aspirations of justice for all. And we need housing. We need housing. We need housing. <laughs> and
2: we need
1: yes. care for people.
0: Yeah,
2: yes, that's, you know, that point needs to be emphasized, even though it's so obvious. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, people who are homeless need homes. People who are mentally ill need treatment. This ain't rocket science. And uh, you know, if we if we make this problem more complicated than it is, you know, in the in our public discourse, it's it's gonna make it harder for people to put pressure on on government.
0: But but it does work, and people don't realize. You know, they say, "Oh, we can't go up against the big money." Well, we can because the point is, the big money. What is the big money for? That they want the campaigns for? It's to it's to get their message across. To get their message across to get votes. The person with the most votes wins. And sometimes, yes, it's hard, but sometimes democracy does actually work. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is keeping democracy alive. Our guest today is Dr. Robert Oaken, who's written fascinating, amazing research. His new book is Silent Voices, People with Mental Disorders on the Street, and it's uh, out in uh, August of this month. And I wanted to ask, you know, there's a lot of societal problems, and Police issues have been rather big in the past, oh, 15, 20, 100 years or so. And I wonder about, I don't remember the name of that guy, that, that there was some somewhere in America where police saw a clearly mentally ill person on the street and uh, they ended up killing, they ended up killing the guy. And I wonder about, you know, what you found on your research in the streets about how police deal with it. I mean, they they, they have options, I would think, but what about the reaction of, of our, you know, municipal, state, and, and, you know, police to seeing homeless people? What do they do now? What could they do?
2: Well, first, it's important to recognize just how badly this, you know, many cities criminalize mm. homeless. You know they they have passed ordinances that make it illegal, for example, to you know to sleep on the street, so-called sit lie laws. And um, mm. I was roused by a policeman myself when I was sitting on the street uh, or on the sidewalk talking to uh, a person, and the policeman came and said, "You're not allowed to sit on the sidewalk." So. I mean, just think oh, of the, the the irony of this. You know, first we keep first we make people homeless, then we keep them homeless by our policies, and then we punish them for being homeless by, by arresting them, putting them in jail, where by the way, it's for a mentally ill person to be oh, put in jail God. Oh, God. absolutely aggravates the symptoms. And then when when they're released Are they released to homes, to services? No, Mm -hmm. they're given 30 bucks in their pocket and, you know, just turned out. So where are they going to go? They're going to become homeless again. And some policeman two weeks later is going to see them sleeping on the street. Up they go into jail. And the whole process, uh, Mm. you know, occurs repeatedly, so a lot of people have been who are homeless have uh, been uh, thrown in jail, basically either for their homelessness per se, or for certain behaviors mm-hmm. that uh, are uh, associated with homelessness. I mean, even even something. Well, I just have to take a step back for a second. Sure. You know, one of the one of the uh, real gifts that these people gave me when I spoke to them on the street was they, they really let me see what their lives were like. They didn't try to hide it or sanitize it. And I remember spending those several hours with someone and he needed to defecate. And, you know, I needed to defecate too, but I was able to go into some store mm-hmm. and use their mm-hmm. bathroom when he tried to Go into oh, the no. store with his shopping cart. Forget it. And so, where was he going to do it? He, he did it on the street. I mean, can you believe that? I, like, like, well, where, where else was he going to do it? Uh, so, what, it's uh, wow. What is it that,
0: <laughs> that 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 keeps policymakers from? We we I there are. There's no lack of examples of when states and municipalities do get involved and build as they say workforce housing, low income housing and require, you know, the linkage of low income housing with development. Hey, it works. It works. Yeah, it gets yeah. people What's what, what's the reluctance to do that?
2: <laughs> well, <sighs> I think this may sound harsh, but the reluctance to do it is that we despise these people. Mm. We don't feel identified with them. Right. And we just want to turn away from them. So you know, even though solutions work, yeah. and there are several examples that I could mention, if you're interested, yes. but yeah. uh, uh, even, though, even though solutions work, you, you have to want to execute those solutions. Uh, it's not just whether they work or not. You, you, you have to care that they work right. and you have to want them to work. And if we don't identify with these people and see them as a, a disposable population, then we have no incentive mm. to do things that work. And as you said before, and I, I really want to emphasize it, it's, you don't have to be a sympathetic liberal to want to solve this problem right uh, and if it depends only on you know on progressive liberals right. to put pressure on politicians it, it ain't going to be solved right you know the the people who actually do not like these people who hate the fact that they have to pass them every day you know we we need that group of people as well to put pressure on politicians it can't just be the sympathetic it's got to be the, it's got to be the whole population because all of us are affected by homelessness we may shut our eyes when we pass someone but we we can't forget you know we, we yeah. it just it subliminally affects us i mean people i hear saying all the time now about san francisco that it's turned into a miserable city and i no longer want to live there well you know that's that's a reflection of the fact that homelessness touches all of
1: us
0: mm. and i understand texas and florida have a lot very high percentage of homelessness as well people just like to look at san francisco because well it's san francisco <laughs> And there's, there's a sense of community. I think, you know, in this computer age, people are so damn isolated. And with the, you know, the COVID thing, there was a lot more isolation. And being, you know, having mental illness, being unemployed, being without a home, I can't help but think, you know, it feels dangerous to not be alone, that it must feel safer to feel to be alone than to deal with other unpredictable reactions from other people
2: talk if you yeah, think right. that's. i think that's true yeah. i think that's true you, you know you mentioned texas and uh, you know it's worth mentioning that houston for god's sakes in in red texas mm-hmm. houston a decade ago had one of the worst homelessness situations in the country, but a succession of mayors decided to take this on in a very serious way and oh. focus pri- and focus primarily on those people who were chronically uh, homeless. You know, who had been basically who had been on the streets for more than a year. And as a result of various strategies they used, they were able to cut the homelessness rate by 63% in a decade. In a decade. I mean, Houston, come on. So if Houston can do it. (laughs) Exactly.
1: (laughs)
0: what well again if you just tuned in Bert Cohen here the show is keeping democracy alive and we're talking about a real essential part of democracy that we look away from we don't want to see we want it we want it to be invisible and that's homeless people people who uh, you know oftentimes have have mental illnesses and you know we just don't want to look at it but our guest today uh, on on keeping democracy alive dr. Robert Oaken spent two years uh Doing the research, going out in the streets, talking to 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 homeless people, so he could get a real, real understanding of them. I and mean, you got to face what's hard to face, people, as we all know. You know that's what makes us better, right, doctor? <laughs> and the book is called "Silent Voices: People with Mental Disorders on the Street." Well, what 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 I mean, there have been some solutions that have worked, and I imagine like. Well, as H.L. Mencken said, to every complex problem, there's a simple solution. And <laughs> it's wrong. And it's wrong. It's wrong. There have, what, what are some of the complex, what needs to be done? You've looked into this stuff. What, what can be done? I mean, we have to switch values. And just parenthetically, as someone asked me in, in preparing for this show, I'll bet before the Europeans got to this uh, continent, there wasn't a lot of homelessness. People cared about one another and looked out for one another. But anyway, we're not going back to that uh, to some extent, unfortunately. What, what are some of the solutions? Obviously, build housing. People can put pressure on their local and state and especially federal legislators. And they, they do listen. They really do. What, 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 it, let, let's make you Secretary of the
2: Interior.
1: Well, <laughs>
2: yeah. Uh, first... I think, just going back to basics here, first, we have to recognize that the problem is imminently solvable uh-huh. and, challenge, and challenge our own hopelessness that leads to mm. and, and political apathy. What's the evidence for this? Well, I mentioned Houston. But also, homelessness of veterans has been reduced uh-huh. by 40% in the last decade. Why? Because the federal government, incredibly embarrassed by the way it was botching its VA hospitals, felt under enough political pressure mm-hmm. to do something about these people who had served our country and were thus abandoned by it afterwards. Um, and um, so that's the that's the first thing. Uh, Secondly, we've got to re-examine our beliefs and perspectives about homeless mental ill people and remember that beyond their rags and their tin cups, you, you know, admittedly, their strange behaviors, each of these people was a child once, an mm. innocent child, and is a human being who, in many respects, is no different than the rest of us. Uh, we've got to stop dehumanizing them. And remember that it's largely bad luck that brought these people to their knees. Uh, And once they became homeless, it's been almost impossible for them to stand up and climb out of the homeless state without society's help. Blaming and stigmatizing them for their bad luck and letting our governments treat them as disposable is just really unfair and reveals our ignorance of the individual and systemic causes of their homelessness so
0: well i want to uh, just just real briefly don't let me pick please pick up on where i'm sorry to be interrupting but i'm just thinking about there was a big city where there was kind of a homeless area and they sort of cleaned it out pushed the people out of there because it was bad for business
2: comments yeah well Houston was doing that too. Yeah. But the difference was that they created, you know, low-cost homes for people to move from their tents into mm-hmm. the home. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's this fantasy that we have, which is a, a convenient one because it uh, – It allows us to escape any guilt, but there's a fantasy that, oh, these people in tents, they don't want to live in real society. They want to keep living in tents. Well, it it may be true for a few of them, but by and large, they're living in tents because they've got nothing else. And they may say, Oh, I want to live in a tent, but you know, if you're Mm. living in a tent and you have no hope of living in a in a in an apartment, you know, you've gotta say something like, Yeah, it's it's okay to live in a tent. I wanna live in a tent, but you know, give these people a chance and most of them will grab it. So we
0: And it's better in the long term for business to you know Well, not have homeless people. People have homes. They can participate in the economy, (laughs) not just kick them out of their homes.
2: Yeah. Well, homeless people often have to wait years for subsidized housing.
1: Mm.
2: And people who, in addition, are mentally ill really don't have the wherewithal to complete the really complicated process of applying for housing in the first place. I just, you know, I called one of these housing places and asked them to send me an application. And man, I, I needed some help in filling it out. And even when you fill it out, it, it takes years to get to the top. In some cases, the way a person has to get notified that they've reached the top of the list, if they get a letter in the mail, but <laughs> they don't get a letter in the mail because where's it going to go? I mean, it's, you know, so these kind of contradictions are so obvious that uh, you know they just they just emphasize the fact that we're not serious about solving this problem. Also, if you asked me if I'm Secretary of the Interior, now, I'd say we've got to stop putting these people in jail for behaviors yeah. that they can't think about because they're homeless. Jailing them for sleeping on the street when yeah. they're other. No other place to sleep. And then throwing them back out at the end of their sentence is ineffective, but it's also cruel. You know, one of the most important things that governments can do is to prevent people from becoming homeless in the first place. And this is almost never talked about mm. since since Obama's policy of rapid rehousing, which got cut when the next administration came in, you know, providing financial support and putting in place tenant protections to people who already have housing, but are at risk of losing it, yeah. is really a bust. Because as, look, as long as we let people slip into homelessness, we'll always be playing catch up. Mm-hmm. And it costs much more to pull people out of homelessness than it does to prevent them from becoming homeless in the first place. And besides making fiscal sense, it only seems fair. Why? Because federal and state tax policies allowing mortgage deductions help people who have homes. It's time we start helping those who don't. I mean, the federal government puts a huge amount of money into, into tax deductions for... Yeah. Uh, for mortgages, you know, and I think, I think a lot of us kind of forget just how much we're being helped financially by the government, so-called big big government, as the Trumpists would say. Also, government has got to reduce the barriers to new housing construction so Mm. that more housing is available for people who need it. Uh, Because right now, there are so many barriers to creating this housing, and they have to resist the pressure of certain NIMBY groups Mm who try to stop these developments. Yes. Also, turning to the healthcare sector, I think we've got to stop general hospitals from discharging psychiatric patients before their medications even have a chance to work Mm. and then throwing them into the street without any support, without any case management, without any attempt to house them. And what's the effect of this, besides the fact that they remain homeless? Well, the recidivism rate to hospitals is huge. But what can they expect? It, they, they tend to blame the person, right? But, but what can they expect? It's not only inhumane. But it's also a huge waste of money yeah. and also reduces the number of available beds for others oh, who need true. them. So it's, it's just nuts from every point of view. And then I think, and this may be somewhat controversial, oh, go ahead. Uh, but the kind of outpatient commitment piloted with success in New York City that was enormously successful really needs to be implemented in, in other cities and states. And you know, to Newsom's credit, and I think I think Newsom really cares about this problem. Yeah, I do. Uh, yeah, he you know when he was mayor, he cared about it, and as governor, he cares about it. Uh, he's proposed and gotten through the legislature this notion of care courts mm. uh, that really represent a kind of outpatient commitment for people who are so disorganized that they don't even know they're disorganized. If the courts don't move in and treat them involuntarily, if they can't secure their voluntary agreement and give them housing and give them treatment, uh, then if the, if the state doesn't move in like that, they're going to be, Homeless forever. So I, as I say, I want to give this some credit uh, for creating this. Now, the the bottom line is how these care courts are administered and how effective they're going to be. I think the fact that the court can basically penalize the city mm. if it fails uh, financially uh, in a way, I think, if the city fails to provide the treatment and housing for the patients that the court sees.
0: Well, there are alternatives, and it's in all of our interests. The the aspirations are there. The possibilities are there. Thank you so much for, for being with us today, for the very important work that you're doing. The book is called Silent Voices, People with Mental Disorders on the Street. Uh, second edition put up by Golden Pine Press. Uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Dr. Robert Oaken. thank you so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. We can do it.
2: Maybe? Yeah, we can if we all pull together. Thank you. We can. Thanks. You're bye Bye-bye.
0: Right. I She's a rich girl. She don't
1: try to hide it. Diamonds on the soles oh, of her is shoes. So He's, He's a poor boy, empty hands hands as, hands hands as hands hands a pocket, empty as, as a pocket, I with nothing to lose. Sing tanana, na She got diamonds on the, on the soles of her shoes. She got diamonds on the soles of her shoes. <speaking in foreign language> Diamonds on the of the shoes. Diamonds on the of the shoes. Diamonds on the of the shoes.
0: Diamonds on the of the, shoes. the, of
1: the, shoes. the, of the shoes.
0: If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and, of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.